Well, let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Peter. We are picking this back up. We were walking through this series. You see on the cover of your bulletin, we call it Exiles, Living in Hope and Holiness in a Land That's Not Our Home. We are picking it back up in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 18. And I don't know about you, but I have, I have been loving our time in 1 Peter. I feel like there is so much in this book. And one of the ways that I've been helped is through things like the men's small group, of getting to hear what you guys are seeing in it. There is so much. Please do not think that when you, if you come on Sundays and you hear a sermon on it, that you heard everything there is to say about this passage. Because there is so much more. So be in conversations, talk to one another, share what you're learning, what you're seeing, what you're challenged by, what you're helped by. Um, Because I know that has been a tremendous gift to me to learn from and with you as well. So this morning we are in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Hear the word of the Lord. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. What a gift that we have this word, friends. Well, like I said, it's been a couple weeks since we were in the book of 1 Peter. Uh, We took some weeks off for Palm Sunday and then Easter. Although on on Easter, we, we still heard from Peter, right? He just wasn't preaching to us from this book. He was preaching on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. But now we're getting back to his letter. So I want to take a minute just to refresh, remind us of where we are in this book. So first, remember this is a letter that the Apostle Peter is writing to a group of Christians. Reminding them that because they are followers of Jesus, they have a new identity. They are now sojourners and exiles. And as Christians... We now belong to a new king, Peter says, and to, we are citizens of a new kingdom. So we don't quite fit in this world. There's going to be ways that we are out of step with the values and norms and priorities of the world around us. So after Peter spent the first part of his letter in chapter 1, we spent several weeks just rejoicing in and exalting over this living hope we have because of Jesus and his death and his resurrection. Peter then shifted gears to telling us, Okay, well, because of that, here's how you should live as exiles because of that living hope. 
He said living as exiles will make us different. So the question was, okay, well how? How should our lives as Christians be different from the world around us? What does living as an exile in this world look like? So we talked through some of that. And up in chapter 2, verse 12, Peter called us as exiles to live beautiful lives among the unbelievers so that they see the good that we do and glorify God. That was kind of an umbrella over this section, saying live these beautiful lives so they see the good that you do and glorify God. Then we started a section in chapter 2, verse 13, that's going to run all the way through chapter 3, verse 12. So we're in the middle of that. And in this section, we see two parallel themes running side by side. The two themes are submit to authorities and do good. Submit, do good. And you see these twin concepts played out in three sets of relationships. So last time we saw it in chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, looking at citizens and government. Now this morning in chapter 2, verses 18 to 25, we're looking at servants and masters. And then next week in chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, we'll see it with wives and husbands in marriage. So this morning as we look at this, I just want to be up front and tell you I have one goal for our time together in this text. My goal and my hope this morning is to show you that the Christian life is a cross-shaped life. What I mean is that it is a life that is both created by and conformed to who Jesus is and what he did on that cross. We just spent last week, Good Friday and Easter, remembering and recalling what it was that he did on the cross. But that's not the only weekend of the year that we do that. Instead, what Peter shows us in this passage is that the cross is both the power of our salvation and the pattern of our discipleship. It's not just how you get into the Christian life. It actually shows us how you live the Christian life. And the lens we're going to use to see that this morning is by looking at how servants are to respond when they suffer mistreatment. Mistreatment. When they're treated in ways that they don't deserve. And as I thought about this week, man, I realized how significant a topic this is. This is something that we all need to wrestle with, isn't it? Let me just ask you, in your own heart, how do you handle mistreatment? Somebody treats you in a way like you're just, you're not doing anything wrong. You're minding your own bit. You're doing good, actually. And then you just, somebody goes out of their way to harm you. To say something they shouldn't to you. There's repercussions at work. There's repercussions in other relationships. And you find yourself saying, I didn't do anything. What is going on here? So how do you handle, what do you do? How do you handle mistreatment? And my guess is for most of us, the answer is not well, right? If you're anything like me, the answer is not well. We get angry. We want to retaliate. We, we as a people, we love revenge stories, right? We love payback. When somebody says this, we love when somebody else comes back and, and responds like, oh, one-ups them. Like, oh yeah, you think that's bad? Try this. Like, we, you can look through the best, uh, not best-selling, but the most watched movies of all time. And look how many of them are revenge stories. There's something that just gets us fired up about, yes, take it back to them. Well, in our passage this morning... Peter specifically addresses probably the most mistreated people of his day. Servants or slaves. It's, you can use those words interchangeably in this context. 
And what Peter calls them to here, it is hard and it's beautiful and it's impossible apart from Jesus. Kind of like the Christian life. So let's jump in and let's see what is Peter going to say to these most mistreated people? What is he going to say to these suffering servants? Look at verse 18. He says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Okay, before we dive into the particulars of what he says, we need to take just a minute. Let me give some context about who these people are that Peter's writing to. These are servants. Um, He uses a special word here. It's not the normal word for bond servants. It's actually household servants or household slaves. And slaves in general, including these, would have represented the most vulnerable and the most mistreated people in society during this time. There's two things to note about slavery in this Greek and Roman world, this Greco-Roman culture of the New Testament. The first thing we need to say is that slavery at this time was not the same as slavery in America in many ways. It was not based at all on race or skin color. Instead, slaves became slaves through becoming prisoners of war, or some were just born into it, and others even sold themselves into it because they had debt that they could not get out of. So, but if you were walking down the street, there was nothing on the surface of a person that would indicate to you, slave, not slave. They looked exactly the same. that You couldn't tell by their dress, their skin color. It was not based on that. It was also different than what we are more familiar with from our own sad history, in that slaves were often highly educated. Often, slaves were even more educated than their masters, believe it or not. Because these masters had affluence, but then they would pay these slaves to get educated so that they could do things like teach their children, or manage their business, or be their accountant, or be their lawyer. And so they were often more educated and professional types than their owners themselves. Another difference was that slavery was not necessarily a lifetime situation. Slaves could and often did save enough money to purchase their own freedom. So it wasn't as though once a slave, always a slave. It could be a temporary few years, a decade, but it wasn't a lifetime consignment. So those are some ways it was different. But despite these differences, the second thing we need to say about slavery in the New Testament is that it was still a wrong and wicked institution. And it was still a hard and painful life for the slave. A slave at this time had no independent existence or legal rights. When you were a slave, you belonged entirely to your master. For them to do with you what they will. Aristotle even said that it was impossible to mistreat a slave because they were your property. In other words, there wasn't a category of like, oh, that slave is being mistreated. He's like, no, 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 that's not such a thing. I can do whatever I want to them, just like I can do whatever I want to this water bottle because it's mine. You would never say, oh, you're mistreating your water bottle. He said, you can't mistreat a slave. It's merely property. It's not a person. And I say all that to help you see why what Peter does here is so radical for this time. 
See, at this time, there were lots of things, lots of literature written about how slaves should act. That's not unheard of. There's other literature saying that this is how a slave should conduct themselves. But the thing is, they were never written to servants or slaves. Peter dignifies these servants by actually talking to them directly, acknowledging their personhood. Not just as though they're property that you could speak only about. He says, listen, I have a message for you. And unlike the society of the day, he treats them as responsible moral agents who can make real choices about how they'll act. So while on one hand, no, they cannot choose whether or not they are a slave. They have no choice in that. But Peter says, you can choose whether you'll do good and live beautifully as a slave. You can choose whether you'll submit or not. So Peter's already doing something radical by talking to them and treating them as responsible moral agents. And while this word is is addressed to servants here, it's not meant to be confined only to servants. It's meant to be a paradigm for all Christians. Because think about it with me. If Peter's call to submit to masters is true for them, the people who were the most mistreated of all, then surely it it must be valid for us who are not as mistreated, wouldn't it be? So while none of us in this room today are slaves, none of us in this room are servants, we, all of us, are under various types of authority. Whether it's supervisors at work, teachers at school, officials in the government, we all have people set over us. Therefore, we all face the possibility of those authorities mistreating us. We all face the possibility of suffering unjust treatment at the hands of those over us. So the question is, what does Peter say our posture toward them should be? What does he say? He says, we are to be subject to them. Now, first we hear that, we say, no problem. That's, yeah, I get that. I mean, if they respect us, I'll respect them. No problem with that. That seems fair. And uh, I will submit, you know, as long as they're good masters and they, they earn my submission, yeah, they take care of me, I'll take care of them. Except that's not what Peter says, is it? Notice he says it's not just the good and gentle ones. We are also to be subject to the unjust. That word here is actually a word for crooked or twisted. It's scolios, which sounds like what? scoliosis have a curved or crooked spine he's saying that's what they are they're crooked or curved in their behavior he says even if that's what the masters are like if they're crooked and cruel peter calls the servants here to submit to them well our first question would be well how in the world do you can you expect that to happen peter like i get it submitting to a good master but a cruel and crooked one how do you expect me to do that Well, notice where it says, with all respect. Now, the phrase is actually with all fear. And so the question it begs is, well, who are these servants supposed to fear? Is it their masters? Is he saying submit to them because watch out, you know what they can do to you? Well, who did Peter just tell them to fear one verse earlier? Look up at verse 17. Fear God. 
And this is the same thing he said in chapter 1, verse 17. If you call on him as father, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So what's the point? Peter's saying, listen, servants, you're to be subject to your masters, not because you fear them, but because you fear God. Because you worship God and want to honor him as your true master, you are to submit to those in authority over you, even when those authorities mistreat you. Now, I don't want to spend much time on it, but obviously the same disclaimer applies as last time when we talked about the government. Peter's not saying that they need to submit if their master commands them to sin. Same reason as last time, because they must fear God rather than men. So if their master tells them to sin, the servants out of fear of God are to humbly refuse. Okay? So we're not saying, he's not telling them, go along with what anything your master says, even if it's sin. If it's sin, you need to humbly refuse. But then you say, but whoa, whoa, whoa. If these are crooked and cruel masters and they tell them to do something and that, and that slave says, no, I won't do that. Isn't that going to lead to trouble? Won't that cause, won't they get punished? Won't they suffer because of that if they refuse? Absolutely. And that's where Peter goes next. When he tells them to endure suffering for doing good. Look at verse 19. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Okay, so Peter's going to, he gives us a clue that these verses go together, 19 and 20. Do you, do you see the clue? You see how verse 19 begins with that phrase, this is a gracious thing. And then verse 20 ends with, this is a gracious thing. This is a technique you'll see in your Bibles often. And it, it works like bookends, right? Just like there's two bookends holding things between them together. Well, that's what Peter's doing. When you see these phrases at the beginning and the end, he's saying, what I'm saying here is of a piece. It's one thing. Okay, so what is it? What's he holding up? What's in between the bookends? Well, in between the bookends, Peter tells us something glorious about when we endure suffering, we don't deserve. The phrase he uses there, that bookend, this is a gracious thing, it's simply the word grace. But he's using it a little differently here than how we often use grace. Here he's using it to mean blessing or reward. Something good that is given by God on account of our enduring treatment we don't deserve. In other words, what Peter's saying here is there's a reward for enduring unjust suffering. Okay, and I'm going to show you more of that in a second. But first, we need to be absolutely clear because Peter is. He wants us to know that he's talking about suffering that's not deserved. He's not just talking about suffering of any kind. He says suffering that's not deserved because you're doing good. That's what's rewarded by God. Do you see this? That's why he says what credit is it if you endure punishment because you sin? He's saying, if that's the reason you're suffering, there's nothing admirable about that. Nothing worthy of reward. You're simply getting what you deserved. Nobody says in our culture, wow, look at that guy. That guy that's been in jail for several years because he robbed the bank. Man, that's amazing how that guy's enduring that suffering of being in jail. 
We don't commend that. There's nothing praiseworthy of like what a guy. What, what endurance? We say, no, that guy is getting what he deserved. He committed a crime, and now he gets the punishment that fits it. Peter says, that's absolutely true. So, if, so servant, if you do something wrong and you sin and you're beaten for it, he says, that's not like anything worthy of commendation. But if when you do good, when you do the kind of things that show a beautiful life of following Jesus, if you represent your king and you suffer for that he says if you suffer for that and you endure that brings a reward in the sight of God and don't miss this simple truth notice it says doing good will sometimes lead to suffering you see that it says when you do good and suffer for it they're not independent unrelated ideas the whole reason this person is suffering is because they did good When we patiently endure bad treatment we don't deserve because we're following Jesus, that is a gracious thing, a thing God rewards. Now I want to show you that Peter's motivating our endurance in suffering by this promise of reward. I want to show you that we're on the right track here because you might be saying, I don't know, this whole gracious thing, where are you getting the idea of reward? I want to show you another place, okay? So flip over to Luke chapter 6. Verses 32 to 35. Luke 6, 32 to 35. So as you're flipping there, just think to yourself, wonder where Peter's getting this concept. Where is he getting this logic when he says, you know, if you're, if you're suffering because you sinned, there's no credit to that. But if when you do good and suffer for it, that's a gracious thing. That's a reward. So Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 32, listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says, If you love those who love you, what benefit, same word, grace, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit, same word, is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit, same word, is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Do you hear, do you hear what Jesus is saying? He says, love those who love you. There's no benefit to that. He says, even the non-Christians out there do that. Do good to those who do good back to you. There's no benefit to that. Even unbelievers do that. He says, but, you, you want to stand out? You want something different? The way that doesn't look the same as the world? Loving your enemies? Doing good to those who don't do good back to you? He says, that comes with a great reward. And the whole reason Jesus, why would Jesus say that comes with a reward? Because he wants that to motivate us. He's saying, like, if you do this, no benefit. If you do this, you get a great reward. Why would he say that if we weren't meant to be motivated to get the reward? He tells us this is no benefit. He's saying you should want a benefit. So don't live just that way. Want the reward. And in the same way, Peter's saying, enduring suffering you deserve because you sinned? There's no benefit to that. But enduring suffering you don't deserve because you did good? Now that comes with a reward. 
So friends, when people say and do unkind things that we don't deserve, simply because we're a follower of Jesus, we don't endure that mistreatment and suffering just by being tough. We don't endure that suffering just by gritting our teeth, just pretending like it doesn't bother me, it's fine, I can take it. Take all the things you got. That's not what he says. He says, how do we endure the suffering of undeserved mistreatment? We look to the reward. When we're mocked at work for our backward views on sexuality, we look to the reward. When we lose our jobs because of what we won't say in regards to views on gender, we endure by looking to the reward. We can endure the pain now because of the prize that's coming. And we look to this not just to see what Jesus said, but what he did. Listen to Hebrews 12. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, did what? Endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How did Jesus endure the suffering and the shame that he did not deserve? By looking to the joy that was set before him. Jesus went to the cross, not just in his strength, not just in his toughness, not saying, I'll get through this, I can handle it, you can't get me down. He says, no, no, I'm doing this, even though it's hard and it hurts and it's painful and it's a pain that no other human being has ever felt. How in the world can he do that? He says, I know what's coming. I know what's coming. So friends, how do we endure sufferings while, how do we endure sorrows while suffering unjustly? We look to the reward. And notice here, it's not just that the reward comes after the suffering. It's not just a chronological sequence. The reward comes because of the suffering. Why does that matter? Because the suffering is doing something. Your pain for following Jesus is never wasted. It's never purposeless. It's always preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Christians, we are willing to suffer for doing good because we have a reward coming that is imperishable, that is undefiled, and that's unfading, and it's kept in heaven for you, waiting for you. Our God is using every moment of our suffering to bring us closer to our reward. Which is why Peter says here, did you catch this? Be mindful of God. It kind of just slips right in there. He says, how do you do this? You're mindful of God as you endure undeserved suffering. Keep him in mind. Don't just look at your circumstances. Remember the reality that God is there and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. There's a reward before him for enduring suffering for doing good. So Christian, endure mistreatment for doing good by looking to the reward. That's one motivation for why we are to submit like this, even when we're mistreated. But now in verse 21, Peter's gonna transition to a second motivation. Look there at verse 21 with me. He says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now, did you catch the weight of what he said there? He said, to this you have been called. 
to this. To, to what, Peter? To what have we been called? To endure suffering for doing good. That's what he was just talking about. In other words, this is part of the calling of the Christian life. It's not an occasion that sometimes pops up if you're unfortunate and like some Christians have to deal with. Peter's saying part of the calling of the Christian life is you were called to endure suffering for doing good. When God called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, when he called you to a living hope in him, part of that new life in him is suffering mistreatment for doing good. So friends, one thing that must be said is do not ever let anyone convince you that when you follow Jesus it will only bring you comfort and prosperity and everything will go your way there are many teachers out there who will tell you that and if they are turn them off the Bible says the opposite when Jesus calls us he doesn't say come and everything will be fine he says if anyone would come after me let him deny himself take up his cross and follow me that is the calling of the Christian life. It is not a promise of ease and prosperity. It is, in fact, a promise, a promise of pain and suffering. But it's also a promise of glory and joy and rock-solid hope. And those go together inseparably. Just like Jesus, the road to glory is the path of suffering. Jesus suffered then was glorified. And guess what Peter's going to tell us later in the book, in chapter 5, verse 10? And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Do you hear it? Notice, God called you. And what did he call you to? To his eternal glory. He says, come, Come to my eternal glory. He says, but the road to that eternal glory is the path of suffering a little while. And what Peter tells us in verse 21 is that enduring this undeserved suffering is what we've been called to because of two things Jesus has done. Jesus has both secured our arrival in glory. He's, he's made it absolutely certain. You'll get there, Christian. And he's shown us how to walk the path of suffering on the way there. You will get there. And here's how you walk on the way. You see that in verse 21? Peter says first, he suffered for you. In other words, in your place. On your behalf. And he left you an example to follow. He suffered for us to save us. And he walked ahead of us on the path of suffering so we could follow in his steps. There is, there is a really beautiful picture here in verse 21. That word example, it's a, it has a specific reference. It has to do with this thing, the way kids of the day were taught their alphabet, the way they were taught their letters. They were giving this, this example and it would have the letters on it and the kids were meant to just over and over again trace the letters. They would learn how to make whether it was their little alphas or their olives, depending on which alphabet they're learning, they would just trace the pattern over and over, over and over, learning how to make that letter. The example showed them exactly what it should look like. They, they could look and say, that's what that letter looks like. 
And it guided them so that what they did in their own lives reflected what they were tracing. And Peter's saying, that's what Jesus did for us in his suffering. He left us an example just like that. We are meant to trace our lives over his again and again and again so that the way we suffer mistreatment looks like the way he suffered mistreatment. As our shepherd, he walked the path of suffering ahead of us so that as his sheep, we could follow in his steps. We're walking where he went. So verse 21 tells us we should endure suffering we don't deserve for two reasons. Because Christ suffered for us and because Christ gave us an example to follow. Now, in verses 22 to 24, we're going to fill those both out. We're going to fill those out by answering two questions. In verses 22 to 23, we're going to ask, okay, how is Jesus our example in suffering? What, is that, what do you mean by that? How is he our example? And then in verse 24, we'll ask, what does it mean that Jesus suffered for us? What are those two things? So first, how is Jesus our example in suffering? Look at verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So what do we see here? First, we see Jesus committed no sin. He had done absolutely nothing wrong to deserve the treatment he received. He was wrongly accused. He was betrayed. He was convicted in a sham trial. And then he was sentenced to death as an innocent man. He had committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. In other words, he didn't lie. He didn't mislead. He didn't cover up anything. And every insult Jesus received, every lash of the whip that he felt, every bit of spit on his face, every mockery he heard, every humiliation he underwent was undeserved. Let that land on you. There was not, it wasn't even that like they just went overboard. Like, yeah, he did some things wrong and they got carried away. He didn't deserve any of it. So what did he do when he was accused? He'd done nothing, and yet these charges were outlandishly big against him. What would he do? Did he angrily shout back at them as they said, crucify him, and he had his own things to say back? Did he defend himself saying, no, 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 I didn't do that? Did he hurl accusations against his accusers? When they insulted him, did he return fire? When they threatened him, did he retaliate? No. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Jesus was like the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That's not a coincidence that Peter's picking up this language. Do you see what Peter's doing here? Remember what Peter's calling us to do. Remember who he's talking to. 
He's calling us as servants to endure suffering for doing good at the hands of unjust people. So what does he do to make his point? He reminds us that Jesus knows what that's like. Because Jesus came as the suffering servant. He did nothing but good. His whole life, from birth to the cross, did nothing but good. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He taught them the ways of God. He fed the hungry. He healed the blind. He raised the dead. He did nothing but good. And yet he was treated unjustly. He didn't deserve any of the mistreatment he experienced. No one had ever done more good, and yet no one was ever treated more cruelly. But he didn't retaliate. He didn't complain about how unfair this was. He had no bitterness toward those who mistreated him. He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He didn't defend himself. He didn't demand his rights. Do you know who I am? He didn't even insult those who were treating him so horribly. Instead, what did he do? He embraced suffering he didn't deserve. How? How could he do that? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Actually, the word himself is not even there in the original. So it literally just says, he continued entrusting to him who judges justly. Jesus didn't try to take things into his own hands. He didn't seek revenge or seek justice for himself. Instead, he continuously kept entrusting everything to his Father. He entrusted his circumstances, his pain, his accusers, his reputation, his life, everything to him who judges justly. He trusted that God would vindicate him when the time was right. He might be treated in ways that were horribly unjust by people, but God would judge justly. He would repay the evils of injustice done against him. He would reward the trust that Jesus put in him. God would make all things right, settle all accounts, and he would not let Jesus be put to shame in the end. And friends, that is the example he left for us. That's what Peter's talking about when he says, he left you an example. This is how we can endure when people mistreat us. We follow in Jesus' steps by not retaliating against those who treat us so unfairly. We don't return insult for insult. We don't launch a counterattack. We don't try to pay people back for what they did to us. We don't get even. We don't angrily defend ourselves. Instead, we continue entrusting ourselves and everything to him who judges justly. We don't need to seek revenge because we entrust that to God. We live the way Paul describes in Romans 12. He writes, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable. That's that same beautiful word we've talked about. To do what is honorable or beautiful in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. 
For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There's that doing good again. You see it? When people mistreat us and we face undeserved suffering for doing good, we don't seek revenge. We don't seek retaliation. Instead, we trace our lives over Jesus' example and we continue moment by moment by moment entrusting ourselves to God who judges justly. So that's how Jesus in his suffering is our example. But what does Peter mean on the other hand when he says Jesus suffered for us? That's what you see next in verse 24. Look there. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Now this part of what Jesus did, we can't copy this part. This is where we see that Jesus' suffering wasn't only an example for us to follow. It was a salvation for us to receive. It says he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Now we just saw up in verse 22, Jesus committed no sin. So it clearly wasn't for his sin that he died. It was for our sins. Jesus suffered for us as our substitute. We read earlier in Isaiah 53 that we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. So that means that none of us in this room can look at our lives and say verse 22 about us. None of us can stand up and say, I have committed no sin, neither was deceit found in my mouth. That's the one thing, whatever, I don't, maybe I haven't met you yet this morning, but one thing I know we all have in common is verse 22 doesn't apply to any of us. All of us have turned away from God and turned to our own way. We've sinned in our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. We've sinned by the things that we've done that we shouldn't, and we've sinned by the good things we should have done but failed to do. And for that sin, what we deserve is to be punished. And for the punishment to fit the crime, because that's what we always want, right? You want justice. The punishment should fit the crime. Well, for that to be true, we deserve to eternally experience the wrath of God. That's the really, really bad news. If you've never heard that this morning, that's the worst news in existence. But the best news The news that we just celebrated like crazy last week, friends, is that Jesus suffered for us. The sin of man and the wrath of God has been on Jesus laid. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And Peter likely uses the word tree there, not as just a poetic change of pace, but because he's pointing back to Deuteronomy 21 where it says, anyone who's hanged on a cross is cursed by God. Peter's saying, you know that curse that your sin got you? Jesus bore it so that now we experience his blessing. So now we can sing. I hope you, when you sing that song that we sang earlier, you just, from your heart, you have biblical categories that say, now the curse of sin has no hold on me. Because whom the sun sets free, oh, they are free indeed. Why? Because Jesus became a curse for us. But he didn't, look at this, he didn't just suffer on the cross to free us from the penalty of sin. He died to free us from the power of sin. 
Look at what verse 24 says. The purpose of Jesus bearing our sins on the cross was. It says, so that, why? We might die to sin and live to righteousness. Friends, Jesus died so that you and I can change. So that we don't have to be who we were. Jesus died so that we can say no to sin. We can be dead to it. And it can be dead to us. And instead we can live lives of righteousness. Doing the things that please God. It's because of Jesus that we have the ability to do good. Because of the cross. And look at the end of verse 24. It says, by his wounds you've been healed. By Jesus' wounds, our souls have been healed of the sin sickness that plagued us. Yes, we will still struggle with the lingering symptoms of sin in this life. But for those who are in Christ, the disease has been healed. And it's only by his wounds which he suffered for us. So before we move on to the end, friend, I just want to ask, is this what you believe? And I'm not talking just to you if this is your first time here. This is for everybody. Is that what you believe? When you think about what makes you a Christian, when you think about why you have a hope that one day you will be with God in heaven, is your answer, because I'm a pretty good person, I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty good. Is your answer because I try really hard to do the right thing? Is it because I go to church as often as I can? Is it because when I was younger, I raised my hand? Is it because I, I walked an aisle, I prayed a prayer? Is, if any of those are your answers, friends, the answer doesn't work. Because what will you do with your sin? That's the question. Because we've already said over and over again, we've all gone astray like sheep and turned to our own sinful ways. So what do we do with that sin? The Bible makes clear the only thing that can make us right with God is trusting that he has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. That he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So we are saved not by anything that we can do, but only by the good shepherd laying down his life for his sheep. Do you believe that? If you're here and you are just now believing that, or you've just recently believed that, would you please talk to someone after the service? Come talk to me, one of the other pastors, somebody you're sitting by. We would love to help you because the Christian life is hard and we want to do it with you. But the good news is, if that is your only hope and your only trust, that the good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep and you're one of those sheep, well then verse 25 is really good news for you. For you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Friends, we were gone. We wandered away. We didn't get kicked out. We wandered away. But now look at verse 25. We're back. We're back with our good shepherd. We wandered, but he came to seek and save his lost sheep. And when we wander, Jesus doesn't just say, well, good riddance. I, I told you, stay here. No, what does Jesus do? Jesus comes after us. He puts us on his shoulder and he comes back to the fold rejoicing, saying, look who I brought home. Look who I brought home. And it says Jesus is not just our shepherd. If that weren't enough, friends, he's the overseer of our souls. I don't feel like this one gets enough, enough press time. 
This is a huge one here. If you belong to Jesus right now, he is watching over your soul. He's overseeing your soul. Can you imagine that? He's not just waiting to see. I wonder how this is going to play out. He's overseeing it. He's watching it. He's making sure that only good things happen to it. And Peter knows firsthand. He writes of that which he knows. He's seen what this overseeing of souls looks like, right? Think about Peter's life. Jesus warned him of the temptation that was coming. Then Jesus called Peter. He said, Peter, watch and pray. Watch and pray. Then Jesus prayed for Peter. I prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And then when it did fail, not ultimately, but temporarily, what did Jesus do? He restored Peter when he blew it. He warns him, say, be careful. Peter, you, Peter, you better pray. Okay, Peter, I'm praying for you so that even when you go through the valley, that you will not be lost. And then when Peter stumbles, Jesus comes after him and says, I love you, Peter. Come back. And as the shepherd and overseer of our souls, Jesus does the same for us. He came and found us when we were wandering. Now he walks with us. And he calls us to follow in his steps as we walk the path of suffering on the way to glory. And he will watch over us, oversee us all the way home until we stand with joy before the throne to receive our reward. Friends, we can do good and endure undeserved suffering because Jesus is our suffering servant and our saving shepherd. Would you pray with me? Father, we delight to recall and rehearse these truths together. Lord, where would we be without your pursuing love? without sending your son to come seek and save lost sheep and bring us back to, full, to the fold, to gather into one the children of God scattered abroad. Now we rejoice that we have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. So God, we thank you for that and we pray that you would help us to increasingly trace our lives over his. That when we encounter hardship for his name, that we wouldn't shrink back, we wouldn't give up, but we would endure sorrows while suffering unjustly because Jesus suffered for us and left us an example that we might follow in his steps. Would you help us to do that by your power at work in us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.